new Christmas series, Let There Be Light. One of the challenges of being a pastor is Christmas comes, see when I was young, I thought Sundays came around with great regularity. When I was a kid, right, Christmas, it seemed like Christmas came around like every 10 years. Now, being in my 50s, it's like Christmas comes around every 10 minutes. I said to Joan last year, just throw a sheet over that tree. What's the point in putting it away? It's just a couple weeks, we'll be breaking the thing back out again, right? I, I, some of my neighbors believe in that same thing with their Christmas lights. I see them out there in July and think, well, they probably just don't want to waste the effort that would be involved in taking them down and putting them back up. But imagine if you're a pastor, Christmas brings with it a whole nother set of issues, which is how do you, how in this case, how do I share with God's people the story of the birth of Jesus in new ways, fresh ways, with a different perspective? And it gets, it gets hard because our culture now has so intertwined the story of Jesus' birth into kind of a secular um, celebration of, of feelings and warmth. Uh, it just, the story gets gobbled up in so many ways and parsed, and, and it becomes so ubiquitous. I mean, it's everywhere, and we know about it from the time we're born. I, I woke up this morning, my nephew lives out on the West Coast, and so he had posted sometime late last night a picture of his son, Henry, who's one year old, and Henry had gone to the store, and he was standing in front, have you ever seen the, the, the Santa that does the, the twist dance, you know? And so they're at the store, and Santa's doing the twist, and there's little Henry at one-year-old doing the twist, you know? And I thought to myself, here it is already at one-year-old, right? The concept is in his mind about Christmas and what it means, and I've heard it all before again. I've been dancing the twist of the Christmas since I was one. And, and so how do we share the story in new ways? So this year, back in September, when we started, you know, we start laying out what Christmas is going to look like, uh, I... I realized something for the first time. I am not the first John to ever try to figure out how to retell the story of Jesus' birth in a new and different way. Here's what I mean. Some of you know, if you've been around the church in your Bible, if you get through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, the New Testament starts with four books. They're called the Gospels, which means the good news, the good news of Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Okay? And those Gospels are written by four men, and they take their name from their authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so what's interesting is Mark, he doesn't address Jesus' birth at all. And Jesus comes on the scene in Mark 1. Uh, he actually goes to the river to be baptized. He's a full-grown adult already. Now, the other three Gospels do deal with the birth of Jesus. Matthew and Luke deal with it very similar, similarly. You're quite familiar with Matthew and Luke's version. Really, Luke's version is, is, is the one that shares the most information, which would make sense. Luke wasn't a follower of Jesus's. He, he was a doctor that set out to write a, a, and a court. He, he starts his, um, his book saying, I set out to carefully investigate and write an orderly record of Jesus's, who Jesus was in his ministry. And so Luke gives us lots of details, and Matthew fills in a little bit about Jesus's birth. You know those stories. That's um, Charlie Brown, right? There's, can anybody tell me the meaning of Christmas? And Linus, right? Lights, please. And the light hits him. And he reads right out of Luke chapter 2. So you're really, I mean, the culture is really aware of, of Luke and Matthew's retelling. And Mark doesn't deal with it. Now, here's an interesting thing. Those two Gospels contain Mary and Joseph and mangers and shepherds and no room in the inn and wise men and stars. They're, it's all there. 
But John, the Gospel of John, written by John, who, unlike Luke, actually knew Jesus, walked with Jesus. In fact, John would tell you he was the closest to Jesus of any of the disciples. He often referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. This same John that knew him better than anybody, this same John, whose gospel was the last of the four written, likely many years, perhaps decades, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke's were, this John, who likely writes this as a very old man, probably in his 80s or 90s, and he's looking back now over 50 years of ministry, he tells the story of the birth of Jesus completely different. No, nothing similar, which is pretty amazing. Because if you think about it, John should have known the story better than anybody. Many of you know the story of Jesus on the cross. He's being crucified, and he looks down, and he sees John, and he sees his mother, and he says to, to John, John, this is your mother, and Mary, this is your son, and, and in a sense saying, John, I need you to take care of my mother for me. And while most scholars don't really know what took place with Mary after that event, Many people believe that John did take care of Mary for the rest of her life. In fact, tradition says he took her to Ephesus where she lived out the remainder of her days. Now, you would have to imagine Mary, her role in this story, the birth of Jesus, is kind of like the penultimate event of her life. Like, this is it, right? She's going she's gonna to tell everybody. Can't you imagine people coming from far away saying, Mary, tell me about the birth of Jesus. So John must have heard this story over and over and over and over again, and I'm sure he asked all the time too, Mary, what was it like when the angel came? What did he look like? What did it feel like to have God in utero? Nobody would have known more about this story than John. And yet, when he sits down as an old man to make sure that what he, the story he has to tell gets recorded, he doesn't even include Mary. Not a word. No virgin birth. Nothing. Well, my guess now, remember, John has already, John wrote a lot of the New Testament. He wrote three books, they're, they're really short books, they were letters called 1 John and 2 John and 3 John. He's already written those, okay? He's already addressed some issues going on in churches. And then, many of you don't know, this same John wrote the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. So what happened to John is he faced persecution and he was sentenced um, to isolation on an uh, island called Patmos. So he was sitting out on this island, separated from everybody, kind of imprisoned out there. And it's on Patmos where God gives John a revelation about what the end days will look like. John goes through all of that. And it's now he's in his old age. And my guess is after all of this, he wants to, to make sure as he writes the story of Jesus, he wants to write it with a purpose so that you and I would understand something about Jesus. He had a message to leave behind in his old age, perhaps at least aware of the oral accounts of the other disciples' narratives, John purposely chooses to go in another direction, to tell the story in a different way, in a new way, and that's what we're going to look at for the next three weeks this Christmas. So jump in with me. John starts out with a poem, and it might sound familiar. In the beginning. Anybody ever heard those words, start a story before? In the the beginning. John quotes another poem, one that would have been very familiar to his first century audience. He starts with the same opening that the poem of Genesis 1-1 starts with, the first book in your Bible, the story of creation. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. John 1-1, in the beginning. So he's trying to send you a little bit of a message 
I never caught it before. It's not all that hidden, but it's one we don't talk about all at Christmas a lot. He goes on, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He's referring to Jesus here as the Word. We'll find out why in a minute. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so John is saying that Jesus was not just with God. Jesus is God. And then he assigns to Jesus a specific role in the Trinity. If you do any, any work on theology, what you'll discover is one of the roles Jesus plays in the Godhead is that of creator. That Jesus is the one that created this, all of this. Now think about it. If you know the Genesis account, those of you that are familiar with it, how did God create everything? Did he work with his hands? No, the scripture says that he spoke all of creation into being. When you speak, what comes out of your mouth? Words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John goes on. The poem continues. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Now stick with me, okay? Think along with me. I think John's trying to tell us something about Jesus. Tell me if anything sounds repetitive here. In him was life. That life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. Now there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Anybody catch John's little fixation here? Light. He goes back. He goes, I, I need to, I'm going to change up this story of Jesus' birth. And it's going to center around the Genesis poem and the concept of light. Now, John, if you're familiar with his writings, he's good at giving God names. John gave God, in 1 John, the first letter he wrote to one of, one of the churches, he gave God a pretty famous name. In fact, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to be a Christian to know this. I tell you right now, if I went out to the green in Morristown and I said, give me one word to describe God, God is, what would somebody say? Love. God is love. You know who wrote that? John. Same John. He wrote it in chapter 4 of this first John book. Everybody knows that one. But you know, John had another name for God in the same book, and this was in the first chapter. Here's what he said. He goes, this is the message we've heard from him declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And he goes on and on to talk more about light. Here's what I would submit to you this morning, this Christmas morning. To John, it was at least as equally important to let you know that God is not just love. And to let you know that the Christmas story is not just about mangers and, 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 and unwed teens and no room in the end. What I think John would want you to know is those things are all true, but there's something that is just as true and maybe more important God is light, and light came into the world. That's what he wants you to know. God is light, and it, was only, it wasn't only John who saw this. It was Jesus who proclaimed it. In his writing of Jesus' uh, life, he records the story of Jesus 
in the temple making a pretty similar claim about himself. And when you understand the setting, it's really almost mind-blowing. Here's what happens. In John chapter 7, he gives the setting. Jesus enters the temple during or at the end, actually, of an annual Jewish festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's an eight-day festival. They're there on the ninth day. That festival is celebrated in the eighth month of the Jewish calendar, likely occurring on our calendar sometime between September and October. A day, a time of year, when days are getting shorter and darkness is beginning to prevail. Now this festival occurred annually to commemorate the ways that God had provided for His people as they wandered in the wilderness from their, from their captivity in Egypt to the promised land. How were they going to get there? Well, John, what, what happened is God provided, some of you know the story, God during the day provided a cloud for them to follow and at night provided fire for them to follow. And so what's happening here is they would celebrate this, what God did in the wilderness during this feast. Now, John goes on. He tells us that Jesus is teaching in the court of the woman, of the women. It's a part of the temple that had a big role in the festival, maybe the biggest role, because to commemorate how God led the people in the wilderness through the darkness, right, here's what they would do. They would create annually four huge candelabras, and they would burn throughout the ceremony. These were, in the city of Jerusalem, spectacular like wonders of the world type things. You know, you see the Christmas battles on ABC, the Christmas lights on people's houses. That's kind of akin to what was going on, except you have to remember, in Jerusalem, there are no lights. There's no street lights. There's no cell phone light. And so what would happen is, during that festival, for those eight nights, I mean, people would just gather in wonder at the light that emitted from the temple. Historians say it was, it was a vision like a diamond in the middle of the city. So here we are, day nine, ceremony's over, the candelabras are out, Jesus is in the court of the women, and he's teaching, and he, he, he makes a pronouncement to everybody that was willing to listen. He, he starts, he goes, I am, which in its own right was hearkening back to the name God revealed for himself to Moses. So he was claiming, in a sense, to have the same name as God, I am, and then he goes on, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Remember John, when he introduced this, that said Jesus in him was life, and it was the light of the world. Jesus is now going, that life, that light is me. You see all these candles burnt out? You see how you people love to look at this light during these eight days? The reality is, these are mere symbols of me. What they're speaking of is who's present before you today. I'm the light of the world. Well, you can imagine if you're a religious guy, this is not going to go over well. I mean, imagine me standing up here this morning and changing the purpose of the communion elements. From now on, guys, we're changing this ceremony. These elements are now about me. And when we gather once a month, we're going to testify to my grandeur and greatness as we take the communion elements together. It's likely that because I'm an intimidating figure, many of you would just sit quietly. <laughs> but somebody out there is likely, soon he's quite big, to have a chip on his shoulder and say, liar, these are not speaking of you, which is exactly what happens in the story. The Pharisees challenged him. No, you're not. You are not the light of the world. 
Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony isn't valid. Now, this is a pretty big deal. That's why they get upset. I'll explain more in a later in a second. Jesus answered, he goes, look, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Well, I'm the one that's testifying for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Well, then they asked, because they still didn't get it. They still couldn't believe he could be audacious enough to say that he's coming from God, that God is his Father. They asked him, where's your Father? Let's hear from him. And Jesus goes, you do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, but nobody seized them because his hour had not yet come. I want you to understand the boldness of what Jesus is pronouncing here because in the Hebrew culture, to say that you're the light of the world is a pretty big deal. This is Jesus standing up in their festival, looking at their burned-out candles and saying, if you really want to live, if you really want life, if you really want light, you can forget about these things and start following me. Because in their culture, it was so blasphemous. The idea of light was always associated, it had metaphorical meaning, and it was associated with God and goodness. Darkness was associated with evil and death. That concept of light had huge historical and prophetic meaning, and everybody would have understood it. And John understood it too. That's why he wrote Jesus' birth story differently. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to the poem that John is mimicking in Genesis 1. Here's how Genesis describes the state of the universe prior to God speaking into existence through the Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. M most scholars believe it was Moses that wrote this down. Moses writes that in the beginning, before the Word of God, before, the, before God spoke, before Jesus created, the earth was formless, it was empty, and it was dark. And into a world that was formless, empty, other, other translations say void, and dark, God speaks, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. It was formless, empty, and dark. But the God of the universe said, let there be light. And suddenly, to a world in which there was no form, there was structure. And suddenly, in a world that was just void and empty, there was fullness and purpose. And in a world just blanketed by darkness, there shone a great light. In the beginning. Stick with me now. Think, think through this through. Is it possible that for John, after a lifetime of being on the run, of watching over Jesus' mother Mary, after having been persecuted and left on the island of Patmos to die, after watching Peter and Paul and the other disciples die martyrs' deaths, is it possible that when John sat down as an old man, after writing everything he had written, after at least hearing of what Matthew and Mark and Luke had written, is it possible when he decided to write down his story before it was too late, 
Is it possible that he went back to the first poem in the beginning because he wanted to tell you and I something? Because he knows you know the story. But is it possible that he wants you to know this? For a people who have a propensity to spend their lives stumbling around in the darkness with no form or structure or purpose or life, your light has dawned. And that changes all of those things. In fact, the prophets foresaw this. The ancient prophet Isaiah, looking forward to the day of the Messiah's birth, said this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has, has dawned. When John writes it and when Jesus proclaims it, he's saying, look, I am, I am the God, the God alone, who alone has the ability to take what is formless and bring to it structure. To take what is void and empty and make it full and give it meaning. And I am the God alone who has the ability to take what is dead and make it alive. That's why John goes, you need to see something in the beginning. For some of us, this is our testimony. Uh, this is our story. We've met this Jesus that does these things. Formless, without purpose or form. I was watching Joan make cookies the other day, and she, she had a big mound of dough, and she was using a, a, a form. And when she took this mound of dough and she put a form into it, suddenly it had structure and definition and meaning and purpose I think John would claim that for those of us that walk in darkness, that do not know Christ, that live in a world where we're just living, we're just existing day by day, this is our life. It is a life without form, without purpose. Which I think, if I'm honest, I mean, that's the way most of us lead most of our lives. I mean, I fall into it all the time. Have you ever felt that? Like, you know, remember when you were a kid and you thought, man, when I'm 20, I'm going to get it all together. I'm going to sow my oats here in college. Once I get into my late 20s, then I'm going to put some structure on this thing. Next thing you know, you're 30. Well, I can't really work on this now because these kids are driving me nuts. 40, got to work. I got tuition to pay. 50, well, might be too late now. See, there's something about us where we age on the outside but nothing on the inside ever seems to grow or mature. In some ways, I am still the same lost child I was when I was 16, 18 years old. Peter Pan's. The boys and girls that never grow up. See, your outside has changed. Oh, for some of you, the outside, how it has changed. <laughs> it's morphed. It's transformed, all right. But on the inside, you're still the same. You're not, you're not becoming who it was you wanted to be or you thought you would be. I, I think this, con and this is disappointing. This is why we, we, we try not to look at it a lot. I, I think that this is what's at the root of every middle-aged crisis. There are, there are a lot of Corvette convertibles on the road because of this formless thing. I'm, I'm sorry to whoever has a Corvette convertible. <laughs> I really want one, honestly. That's how I know. 
See, I'm 52 years old. I wanted to be at 52. I was going to be as secure in who I am. But why, when somebody says something mean about me, does it just get to me at such deep levels? See, I, I'm 52 years old. I thought at this point I'd be content. I remember, I can tell you exactly where it was. It was in front of a diner on Broad Street in Newark, New Jersey in 1990. And I was walking with friends, and I remember saying to them exactly, here's the deal, all I need is just, if I could just have a wife and a couple of kids and, and just an average house, I'll be happy, you know, I'll be content. To which I feel like now there's the 52-year-old guy like the, the person in the story before. Liar! Because I thought I'd be content, but there's this thing sometimes that creeps up in me where I'm not. I'm frustrated. I want to be happy, but sometimes I'm so angry. I want to have a life full of good relationships, but somehow they all get jumbled up. It's like I, I, it's like I thought I'd be something and I didn't turn into it sometimes. I, I never got formed. Now, I do lots of counseling, as you can imagine, and after this you won't want to come see me. But what I would tell you is... <laughs> At the heart of most of our problems is this. We have a lack of formation. We grow up, but we don't change. Stick with me on this. Just because you got older and got a couple of gray hairs, did that teach you how to relate to people? Or how to love someone? Or how to forgive anybody? Did just getting older and putting some more, some more candles on the cake, did it help you to understand your sexuality? Did it help you to understand how you should love your spouse or be in a marital relationship? Did just getting older, did it teach you how to raise kids? No. Those are things that come because of forming. Just because you grew up doesn't mean you know how to do surgery or fly a plane. In order to do that, you need to be formed into a doctor or a pilot. And it is Jesus who forms whole, full, mature human beings. The Christian world word for this, maybe you've heard it, is sanctification, which means to become, over time, more like him. Jesus sanctifies. Out of, out of a void, out of a formlessness, Jesus can bring structure and purpose and integrity. Now, make no mistake about it. All of us are being formed one way or another. In fact, that's actually what Isaiah was prophesying about. Remember, I, I read you, and you know the great Christmas prophecy, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That's right at the beginning of chapter 9. Well, who are the people that are living in a land of deep darkness? What does that look like? Well, he, here's what's happening at the end of chapter 8. Here's what a people looking for direction and for formation uh, look like, but they look in the wrong places. Isaiah prophesies, and he says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists, isn't it fascinating we're still doing the same thing? Ah, oh, you know, my cousin saw Madame Marie on the boardwalk area. You know, she told her that my second cousin once removed, his name started with a J. And so I'm thinking about going to get some help. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone doesn't speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. See, if, they, if what they're telling you doesn't go in conjunction with God's revealed will, 
It's, it's baloney. It's darkness. There's no light of dawn there. And here's what happened. D- distressed and hungry, they're going to roam through the land. And when they're famished, they're going to become enraged and they're going to look upward and they're going to curse their king and their God. And how about this line? Then they'll look toward the earth. See, where do, where do we try to get formed? We try to get formed out of the earth. Then they're going to look here for their formation. And they're going to see only distress and darkness and gloom and they'll be thrust ultimately into outer darkness. Where did Isaiah see the people looking for help and instruction and formation? On the earth. And it's to people like that, like us, Jesus comes and through his word and through this this power of the Holy Spirit, this is why Jesus came, this is why John says a light has dawned. Light brings purpose and structure and form to that which was without form. That's Christmas. See, without knowing him, we are a people in the darkness, stumbling around, looking to the Kardashians for wisdom. (laughs) Right? Think about this. Nothing changes. Uh, To a people like us, a light has dawned. Here's how the psalmist understood it, because we tend to think, oh, God is, you know, do what God says or you're going to get punished. That's not what God is up to. Do you know how much God loves you? and longs to bring purpose to your life and form and function and integrity to a formless life. Here's how how the psalmist saw it. He goes, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me, and they make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I've kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I haven't departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, formation from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Why? Because your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Light, form, purpose, direction, Jesus, a lamp for your feet and a light to your path. Into the darkness, light has come. Now, here's the interesting thing about about light. Light, and we're going to talk about this next week more, light has the power to overwhelm darkness. If you've ever walked out of your house at night, darkness doesn't pour into your house. Light pours out of your door. Jesus has the same impact in our lives. He lights up the darkness. Here's how King David saw it. He said, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me, because David was all caught up in sin, and the light become night around me, even the darkness isn't dark to you, the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Simply put, in the light of the presence of Jesus, you have no secrets. None. God knows everything about, God knows things that you don't even know about yourself. Everything, nothing is hidden before him. The bad night back in college, the one time you had too much to drink, the poor choice you made at the conference, the motive behind why you had to tell her. He knows all of it. That's what light does. Light illuminates the dark. Funny thing about light, though. Light always overcomes the dark. Sin prospers in the dark. Sin in our lives has power when we hide. 
it speaks to us because nobody knows about it, but we know about it, and it whispers in your ear who you are, what you've done, where you've been, you're no good, you don't measure up, you haven't done enough. It enslaves us to our past. But if you've ever done it, when you bring something out into the light, sin loses all of its power. Sin loses power in the light. You're freed in the light. Some of you have experienced that. Confession is part of the Christian story. Now, some of you come from a background where you were instructed to confess to a priest because he had power to forgive you of your sins. Our understanding, when the Scripture says to confess your sins one to another, it's to take the light of Christ and, it, and it, it, it shine it in the recesses of our lives. Because when we confess to one another, when we bring it into the light, the sin loses all its power over you. you, you, you the light of the world has come. And if you would but let it into the dark recesses of your life, you'll be free. That's what light does. Jesus is the light of the world. He exposes all your junk. But at the same time, it's the same Jesus who said, I didn't come just to light up all of your sins so I could wave my finger at you. I came into the world so you might have an understanding that when the light of the life of Christ shines on my life, I realize I am way short. But Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to judge it, but to save it. Right before this story of Jesus in the temple, talking about being the light of the world, right before that story is a story of a bunch of uh, religious guys, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, bringing a woman caught in adultery to Jesus. And they look at Jesus and they say, Jesus, they're trying to trap him as they always were. Jesus, we just found this woman. They must have been on the lookout for her, right? We found her committing adultery. And Jesus, you know, you know what the law says, Jesus. Anybody caught in adultery needs to be stoned. See, for this woman, the light had dawned on her sin. And now Jesus could have said, yeah, that's what happens when, li when light comes on your sin. Now you pay the price for it. But that's not what he did. He got down on the ground and he began to write. And After a few minutes, he goes, well, okay, any of you without sin, you can cast the first stone. And most of you know the story. Uh, they all dropped their rocks and left, and eventually Jesus looks at her and says, woman, who condemns you? And she says, well, there's no one here. And Jesus goes, well, then I don't condemn you either. Now go and le leave your life of sin. The light of the world. Lighting up the darkest recesses of your life so the grace of Christ can come and set you free. Jesus, he came to bring form. He came to bring light, and finally he came to give you life. It was another claim Jesus made about himself. John, two chapters later in chapter 10, here's what he records Jesus saying, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John recorded earlier in his birth narrative, in him was life, and that life was the light of the world. Jesus came to bring us life. He was speaking to people that were alive already, so it wasn't like he was saying, well, you know, to make you alive. He was saying, no, a different kind of life, an eternal one for sure, one where we're never going to live now or forever, separated from God or, or another. But that eternal life begins today, a life where we find our purpose and our cause, where we stop trying to find meaning and, and pleasure and dignity and happiness 
in the abundance of our stuff or, or in our achievements or our conquests or our titles. Now, I can only speak for, for myself, but I know some of you share this story. And while I'm, rec- I'm still wrestling with this, okay, because I like, you know, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That story's a lot easier. This one's a little harder. But here's what I would tell you. I found my purpose in Christ. He's put a call on my life, and I'm trying as best I can, not perfectly, mind you, and you'll remind me, not perfectly, but I'm trying my best to fulfill his call on my life. You know, God has a call on your life. It's likely not to be in full-time ministry, but he has a purpose for your life, to follow him. And I know for some of you, this is your story too. You've moved from purposelessness and void to meaning and cause. I have to tell you, my office is less impressive. I make a lot less money than I used to make. But I walk around with a, with a point now. M- my friend Eric that sits in the first service all the time, he's been a CEO of multiple companies. He, he gave it all up a year ago. You know the only job he has right now? I don't know if you could call it a job, but he just works at, at Market Street Mission Thrift Store every day. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, oh, dude, I just... I love it. This was what I was created to do. He came that you might have life. This is what Jesus does. I saw Matt Chandler speaking on this topic of, of, of Jesus giving our lives purpose, and he brought up uh, an interview with Tom Brady that I had never seen. Now, listen, I know we can all agree on Tom Brady. Our, we, in general, we all despise him, correct? <laughs> and here's why we despise him, because he represents everything that we're not, Right? You know, every once in a while, God just deals somebody like five aces, right? You're like, couldn't you at least be ugly, right? <laughs> like, at least then I could go, well, you know, you're more like Andrew Luck, right? I could deal with that, the neck beard and everything. But no, he's got to be beautiful. And then who's he marry? Giselle. <laughs> I see her walking next to him with the, the Victoria's Secret wings on, right? So how many Super Bowls has he won? Six? Seven? I, I don't even, whatever. It's scarring for me. Tom Brady, can we all agree, has made it. He is the man. Yet, interestingly enough, I've never seen this before, Steve Croft from uh, CBS interviewed him. And, and here's what he said. He goes, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. Man, can I just back you up? This is Tom Brady. God, there's got to be more than this. Than this. I mean, that, this? He's going... He said, I, I, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. This is when the interview was. And what else is there for me? And then Steve Croft asked him a question. He said, well, I don't know. What else is there for you? And you want to sense darkness? To which he responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Look, maybe you're not sure of the whole biblical inspiration thing. Maybe you're not sure that Jesus is who he said he is. But man, you would have to at least put some heat into the words of this guy. Because without the light of Christ, we have a real propensity to stumble around in the darkness. 
He's got everything, and yet at the same time, he says, I've got nothing. As the band comes up, this Christmas, John wants you to see things differently. He knows you know the story, but what he wants you to understand this Christmas is that for a people walking in darkness, a great light has dawned. And just like he did in creation, he is creating a people for himself. And from them, from a people without form, he's creating purpose. And for a people who stumble in the darkness, he's providing for them light. And for a people who wonder if there's really life out there, he's going, there's life abundant. In fact, John outs himself. I read you John chapter 1. Here's the end of his gospel. This is what he's trying to achieve with that story. This is why he wrote it a different way. This is what he wants you to know this Christmas. He, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. I didn't write them all down because that's not what I was trying to get you to understand. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Merry Christmas. <laughs>